right, good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Today, we are diving straight into the text, so if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to Ezekiel 37. If you don't, it will be on the screen behind me. But as you flip there, I want us to start to understand the context around what we're talking about this morning. That in Ezekiel 37, there is this vision that Ezekiel has. And, oof, Steve gave me easy preaching material this morning. Like, I could read this and we could close up and get out of here because it it really preaches itself. But I want it to come to full maturation in our lives. And so to do that, we have to understand the original situation. And so the first thing is this, the nation of Israel, which is the topic or the people group that we're talking about today, they are in exile when this happens. And when they are in exile, there is this contradiction that's at play because they are the chosen people of God. Yet, they're in exile. There's something that's happened here, and what's happened in the middle is King Nebuchadnezzar has come in on behalf of Babylon and leveled the Israelite people. He has come in and he has murdered their king, Zedekiah. He has offed every single one of Zedekiah's sons. So now the nation has no future ruler. There's no heir to take the throne. At the same time, not only has he murdered these people, but he has desolated their land. He has come down and torn the city apart brick by brick, literally destroying everything they know. So God's chosen people have no future leader and no future land. To sum that up, they essentially have no hope. This is where we're going to pick up the text today. And if you've read the book of Ezekiel before, you'll notice this juxtaposition. That while the nation of Israel finds itself suffering... Ezekiel the prophet keeps making these promises on behalf of God. There's this irony, right? If you were to flip back just to chapter 36, you'd see Ezekiel promise all these things on behalf of God. He describes a nation that's flourishing, that's beautiful, that's powerful. He describes God's chosen people. Yet he describes that in the irony while they're suffering, while they're in exile. Right, he speaks of flourishing, but he speaks of flourishing to the people in suffering. And that's what Ezekiel does over and over and over again. He speaks to a people about hope who are not hopeful. Have you ever felt that? Hopelessness. Like your situation or something you're walking through, it's just, it, there's, it's never going to get better. The relationship you have is in tatters. The future and the dreams you imagined feel unachievable? Have you ever felt hopeless? This last January, myself and the Grace Point staff got the opportunity to fly to Orlando, um, which is a sweet deal, right? Orlando in January is, you can't pass that up. But we were going for a purpose, right? Amen, right? We were going for a purpose because we were going to join the General Wesleyan Church Conference. And so we were there to meet and learn and worship alongside our denominational brothers and sisters. It was honestly an amazing week. But the trip there was less than amazing. Because I don't know if you remember this last winter, but it sucked. (laughs) And I typically wouldn't say the word sucked from the stage, but every other word I thought to describe this last winter would have gotten me fired. So we'll stick with sucked. It was January, it was terrible, and this huge snowstorm was coming in, right? And we were set to fly out of Sioux Falls way too early in the morning. And so we, we had this dilemma, right? How are we going to get to Florida? Because Lord knows we want to be in Florida. 
And so we started to, to, to figure out plans and eventually we decided to, f- to drive up to Fargo because for the first time in the history of ever, it wasn't snowing in Fargo. And so we visited our enemies up north and we like kicked some dirt while we were there. But we used their airport, right? And we, we slept at this hotel. We got up at an ungodly hour, right? We get to the hotel or we get to the airport. We stumble onto the plane and we're sitting there and you think all is well. But over the intercom, it's... We're now going to de-ice the plane, which if you've ever been on an airplane and you hear that, the pit in your stomach should form, right? Because I don't know what's wrong with airports and airplanes, but the de-icing process needs to be fixed. Someone in this room is smarter than me who can provide a solution because every single time I've ever heard that message, I'm stuck on the tarmac. And for an hour, We sat there waiting for them to come from who knows where to spray who knows what onto this plane so we could take off. And as we were sitting there, some of us started to crunch the numbers because we'd we'd been there for, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour. And our layover in Minneapolis was about 45 minutes to an hour. (laughs) And so we started to, to figure out just how bleak our situation was. That unless this airplane turned into a jet, we were out of luck. We land in Minneapolis, and as we land, everybody throws their phone out of airplane mode, and it's bing, 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 because the Delta app is telling us we need to start rebooking a new flight. They've given up hope on us, but we are pastors. The Lord will provide. (laughs) And so we hop off that plane, and we are, and, and if you've ever been to the Minneapolis airport, it's not Sioux Falls. It's got so many terminals and we're in like terminal A and we got to get to terminal like E. And so we are hopping between different like runway tracks. We are running down, jumping between different terminals. We are like jumping over pedestrians, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm embellishing, but your Grace Point staff has some speed. We were hustling. But even as my lungs were burning, my heart still didn't believe. The situation looked pretty bleak. Eventually, I rounded the corner into Terminal E, and I heard what sounded like the voice from heaven go, Brennan Schmidt, Matt Douglas, Dave Hopewell, Aaron Cloud, this is your last call. (laughs) And in the midst of hopelessness, there is hope bringing forth, right? And we kicked it into another gear, and to cut the shorey store, we made it way, way too sweaty on this plane. And the shame when you walk down the aisle and everybody says, you're the reason we're still sitting here, right? There's all that hopelessness, but, but I tell you that story because that's kind of where we're picking up the text today. That in the middle of hopelessness, hope comes forth. In the middle of what seems so bleak, there's a promise. In this chapter, God speaks to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, and God proclaims hope in the midst of hopelessness. Here's how he does it. Verse one, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the valley. It was full of bones. I like the way that uh, the message puts the start of Ezekiel 37. It says it like this. God grabbed me and he put me down in the valley. What I find so interesting in that is the imagery, it it erupts in me, it brings up in me. Right, because what I picture is God almost grabbing Ezekiel by the scruff of the neck, like you would a dog. This commanding, forceful leadership, and then he drops him in the valley. And when he drops him in the valley, this is no ordinary valley, it is the valley of death. 
It is a valley full of bones. And this is where I want you to pause with me for a second. Because God has made us with incredible minds and imagination that we often don't tap into. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I'm going to make you picture this scene. And some of you think this is dumb. Appease me. Close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, picture this. God has picked up Ezekiel. He has dropped him in the valley and it is full of bones. He is in the valley, in the desert, dry and desolate. And imagine yourself standing there, eyes trying to adjust to the blazing sun reflecting off the glassy sand. Blistering heat, which we get blistering heat this last week, blistering heat soaking into your skin as you start to see the bones. They, they, they're coming into picture. A sea of bones so vast, you can't quite tell where they stop and the horizon starts. A valley full of death, aka the valley of death. You can open your eyes. That is what Ezekiel sees in his vision. A place full of death, full of decay. And this is what happens next. Ezekiel continues in verse 2. He said, God led me back and forth, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Unlike us, Ezekiel does not get to be a passive bystander to what's happening here in his vision. God has him in the trenches. He walks back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, examining each and every square inch of this valley, seeing the bones. And as he does that, he makes two observations. The first one is this. Ezekiel sees the quantity of bones in the valley, symbolizing how vast the destruction was. He describes a great many bones. What Ezekiel is experiencing is not some kind of offhand mishap. It's not someone took a wrong turn kind of mistake. What Ezekiel is witnessing is the carnage of a bloody war. A place where an entire people group were slaughtered. A whole nation found their demise in this valley. The destruction was vast. It stretches farther and the bones are piled higher than any of us imagined. It is ten times worse than we picture it is the valley full of bones. The second thing Ezekiel sees is the quality of the bones in the valley, symbolizing how far they are from life. He notes they are very dry. Right? When he's standing there and he's looking and he's walking, he sees, one, that this whole valley is full of bones, and two, they are in complete decay. There is no skin, no flesh, no muscle, no tendon, no life in these bones. These bones are far removed from their days of life. Their days of flourishing are, are, are no more. They are dry, so very dry bones, as dry as the desert floor they lay on. This is Ezekiel's experience in the valley. Death, destruction, and decay. As he experiences that, God asks him this question in verse 3. Son of man, can these bones live? I find that laughable. God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? Not Ezekiel asking God. That makes sense to me, right? He walks through the valley. He sees the bones. He, he has to step over the carnage, right? And he turns to God, can these bones? No, 
God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Right, and the irony of that is every single thing in Ezekiel's experience speaks contrary to this question. Right, have you ever had a loaded question thrown at you? Right, one where you know the answer, but you know you also don't want to provide that answer. It feels like a ticking time bomb just got thrown in your lap and the only one unwise enough to touch it, right? That's what just happened to Ezekiel. He has lobbed this question that speaks contrary to his experience. Because one, he's in the valley of death. The very title of the experience, the very place he finds himself exudes death. It is full of bones. Bones that are far removed from life. The countless amount of these bones and the state of these bones. <laughs> Can these bones live? Right? Even Ezekiel's, even the valley symbolizes how contrary and how, how crazy God's question is. Think about the greater biblical narrative. God moves on the mountaintop, not in the valley. Moses, he receives the law on the mountaintop. Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal on the mountaintop. Jesus calls the 12 disciples on the mountaintop. Jesus is transfigured, probably the most holy, mesmerizing, incredible passage in the New Testament. He is transfigured on the mountaintop. Jesus' most famous sermon the Sermon in the Valley. No! <laughs> it's the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God moves on the mountaintop. Not in the valley. <laughs> Can these bones live? In the lifeless valley. This is the question tossed at Ezekiel. Here's how he responds. He says, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. I see this as Ezekiel kind of sidestepping God's jab. Because there's this doubt, but even in his doubt, there is wisdom. He still submits to God's sovereignty and God's knowledge. He has this doubt, but he's, whether, he's able to tether it both to who he knows God to be and to who he knows God what he can do. God's sovereignty means he is in control. He's in control of everything. So when this question is thrown at him, Ezekiel's response is, you could if you wanted to. Sovereign Lord, you're in control. If you want these bones to live, they will live. He's in control. Then he says, you alone know. God's knowledge is supreme. He knows all things. From creation's first days to its last days, there is not a moment in between where God does not know exactly what will unfold. And so Ezekiel takes confidence that he knows, that God knows, if these bones can live. He responds, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. God volleys back in verse four saying, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you. You will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. In the lifeless valley, God is speaking life. In the hopeless valley, God is bringing hope. 
Nothing should live here. It is dead, decayed, destroyed. No hope for a future promise or for life. Yet here is God speaking through Ezekiel. And he tells him, prophesy. Now prophesy just means to speak truth. God is commanding Ezekiel in the valley, in the situation, speak truth. Speak my words, which are truth, to these bones. Specifically, the first thing he says is speak to the breath. And when we hear that, we should jump back in our Old Testament to the book of Genesis. Because if you're unfamiliar, the book of Genesis starts with Genesis chapter 1, which is the creation narrative. And then just in case you missed it, Genesis chapter 2 is the creation narrative. God does it again, but he does it in a different way, a more in-depth way. So when you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, you see the creation of man. And how God does it is he does it like this. He takes the dust on the ground, something that has no life, that is dry, you could say is destroyed or decayed. It, it, it is nothing, and he forms man from the dust. He doesn't use that which is alive. He doesn't use that which is, which is astounding. He uses dust on the ground, absolutely nothing, and he forms man. But it's, it's odd when you read the passage because now there is this body that stands in front of God but isn't alive yet. It is a body without breath. And when there is a body without breath, there is no life. And so in Genesis 2, and then again in Ezekiel 37, God is teaching us that his breath brings life. His breath brings life. That word breath in the Hebrew is the word ruha. And ruha can be translated multiple different ways. One of them is breath. Another, another of them is spirit. And so when God, throughout Ezekiel 37, throughout the Old Testament, when he uses the word breath, he can also be talking about his spirit and the, the symbolism and beauty of that in the text today. That yes, there is a physical body in Genesis 2 that without breath is dead. But today we can have physical bodies that have breath, but without God's spirit, we are still dead. And so God speaks about his breath, his spirit that gives life. After God speaks of breath, he speaks of a couple other things, the first of them being tendons. Now, I'm no doctor, um, but my Googling's pretty decent, so hang with me here. I understand tendons to be when you have a muscle that needs to connect to the bone. Can I get, can I get an amen? Do I got a medical profession? Yeah, yeah, good, thank you. The muscle connects to the bone by the tendon. So, no tendon, no strength. You've got muscle, you've got bone, but you've got no tendon and you've got no strength. And so the illusion has been made that the, the tendon God provides symbolizes his, his strength. In the midst of the valley, when God offers tendons to these bones, he's promising his strength. In the valley, God strengthens. The next things that are talked about are flesh and skin. These are often alluded to the protection God provides because our bodies have many vital organs. And without the covering of flesh and skin, they are very vulnerable. And so when God gives these bodies flesh and skin, he gives them his protection. In the valley, God protects. He brings life, he strengthens, and he protects. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I was prophesying. There was a noise, it was a rattling sound, and the bones, they came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered, skin covered them, but there was no breath. There is a body, but no breath. Verse 9, prophesy to the bones, God says. 
prophesy to them, son of man, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, come from the four winds, breathe into those slain that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded and breath entered them and they came to life. They stood up a vast army. Ezekiel goes from a valley of death to a vast army. And in the middle, God has spoken about hope to hopelessness. God has promised life where there was death. In the valley of death, God alone provides life. In the valley of death, God alone provides life. What started off dead is now alive. Where there was no hope, there is now hope. Can these bones live? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And he did. It's at this point I'd like to jump back in the text to a a section of verse 6. It's actually the second half, and I skipped it intentionally because I wanted us to come back to it in this moment. It reads like this, Then you will know that I am the Lord. It feels like fairly uh, skippable text, but what we just read there, those, those handful of words are essentially the linchpin to Ezekiel's entire vision. Without these words in verse 6, the whole thing begins to fall apart. Ezekiel is picked up, dropped in the valley. The valley is full of bones that are, that are incredibly high stacked and incredibly dead. He is commanded to speak on God's behalf. He speaks the truth. He sees the power to bring life from death. And he does all of that so that we would know that God is the Lord. All of this, this whole scene, so that we would know God is the Lord. If you'll allow me to butcher the original Hebrew, verse 6 reads, Yada ki ani Yehovah. That, that, that language translates that we would know that he is Yehovah. That we would know he is Adonai. That we would know he is Yahweh. That we would know he is I am. That we would know he is the Alpha. That he is the Omega. That he is everything for us that we could ever need. That he is God. That's why all of this took place. Because Ezekiel needed to know. And Israel needed to know. And we need to know that he is God. And I wrestled with that this last week. I did. I wrestled with that this last week for two reasons. The first one is this. The extent that God will go to prove that he is God. As I read through the Old Testament, I am just blown away at how consistently the nation of Israel would walk away from God. He would provide for them in this miraculous way like splitting the Red Sea or providing manna from heaven, or guiding them by a pillar of fire by night. And they would just turn their back and they would just leave God. And I'm like, why? Come on! Like, it's so obvious. But yet God showed up time and time and time again to prove he is God. And then I look at our own lives, and and so consistently I think we find ourselves on the mountaintop. God is good. I can sing the songs. We can fellowship in the foyer. It's all smiles and giggles and happy and yay, right? And then it's not. And in the struggle, we walk away from God. And God comes back to us and he teaches us, I am God. And so one, I struggle with how often God must prove that he is God. And then two, I struggle because I get really frustrated with God's response to Israel's situation. 
if you remember, Israel is in exile. They are oppressed. They are a nation without a leader or a land. They have no hope. What's God do? Shows up, says, I'm God. I'm here. I am the Lord. And if I'm Israel, I'd show up and say, I know. I know. I've seen it in the past. I've read about you. My parents told you about, told me about you. I've seen you move. I know you can move. But I'm still in the valley. A place where there is destruction. A place where there is death. I'm still here. So yes, you are God. But I'm still stuck. And I get frustrated for the Israelites. And I get frustrated for us. Because I know there is hopelessness here this morning. Marriages that feel like they are falling apart. Infertility that just can't be overcome. Kids who feel so far gone. Grandkids you don't even know how to pray for anymore. Jobs that are sucking the life out of you. The job that feels like it's always just eluding you. The family that at the seams is just ripping the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness that are crippling. The future that feels bleak. And I'm only just scratching the surface of what's here this morning. And I get frustrated for you. I'm God. And we say, we know. But we're still in the valley. still in the valley. And in my frustration, I brought it to God. <laughs> right, I, was, I went all David on God. I gave him all kinds of words on your behalf. Right, we, we contended this last, this last month, honestly, as I wrestled with his solution to Israel's problem. And as I came to God, he brought me to this. That every single situation in here and ever has been is unique. It is. It's, it's the family members who you're struggling to love. They are unique to you. And so, yes, there is wisdom in the council, but there is uniqueness in your struggle. Whatever your hopeless situation is or has been, there is uniqueness there. And so as much as I, as a pastor, or you, as the person, wants to fix, fix that situation, oftentimes we can't. In the hopelessness, we can't bring forth hope. The destruction, it's vast. The helplessness and hopelessness that you're walking through often isn't become it because it's a simple fix. There's layers and, and problems that are, need to be sorted out. There's a lot of people and brokenness involved in this. And the bones, they are dry. When you're in that hopeless situation, it often feels like it, it has been way too long since life was good. And it's in that situation, in those cases, where we get Ezekiel 37 again. And here's where God led me. He showed me what, that this is a picture of a beautiful vision. That in the midst of hopelessness, this vision would lift our eyes. Past the bones, out of the valley, past Ezekiel, straight to God. That in your brokenness and in your situation and in your hopelessness, 
Oftentimes we've got to get out of the, out of the valley and we've got to lift our eyes past the situation, past the struggle, past the person, and we've got to focus on God. That is his solution. What a beautiful vision this is. That we would be reminded that he is the Lord. And the Lord God, he is the solution to every single struggle of hopelessness because he alone is hope. God alone has the power to bring life from death. And so I don't know if you need a word about your specific situation this morning. But what I know, church, is that we always need a word about God. We always, always, always need to be reminded that he is the sovereign one. He is God. He's never changing. He's never leaving. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's strong. He is everything you could ever need. He is God. He is God, and we need to be reminded of him today, that God is the Lord. And so whatever you're walking through, yesterday, today, or tomorrow, I hope you know I empathize with you. I spent time this last week just sitting in some of the heaviness of life because I needed to to, to experience some of the darkness so that I could cling and reach for the light. Some of you, you don't need to practice it. You're, You're living it. If that's you, I empathize with you, but I cannot provide you a solution apart from a God who brings life from death, who shines light in the darkness, who brings hope to the hopeless. Do you need life this morning? Are you in a situation that feels as hopeless as the Israelites in exile? No leader, no land, no future. If that's you, my invitation is come to God. Come to God. I beg you, please, come to God. He has your hope and your solution. Ezekiel's vision finishes like this in verse 13. God says, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I have opened up your graves and I have brought you out of them. When I have put my spirit in you, you will live And I will settle you in your land. And then you will know I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. Can I get an amen? He has done it. That is God. He is God. He has done it for us. 2,000 years ago, there was a cross that his son died on. And when he came up from the grave and he was resurrected, he did it. That's God. And today, in every single one of our situations, he's still God. And he wants to provide for you and he wants to protect you and he wants to strengthen you and he wants to bring hope out of hopelessness and life out of death and light out of darkness. That is God. We need God this morning. He's done it, church. He'll do it again. How I want to finish is I want to invite you into a time of prayer. And what this is going to look like is it's going to be about three minutes where the team is going to play behind me. And as they do, I want you to come to God. I want you in your words, in your time, with the the silence that we have in here, I want you to come to God personally. If you're hopeless, bring him that. He's big enough, he's strong enough to carry that. Bring your hopelessness to him this morning, in these moments. 
If you're not, if you are not hopeless this morning, but you are filled with hope and you are on the mountaintop, here's two things I would tell you to do. One, pray for your brothers and sisters in the room because there's hopelessness here. In the valley, we join, in the mountain, we join those on the valley and we lift them up. And so in prayer this morning, I encourage you, lift each other up. And then the second thing I would encourage you, if you are not in the valley, but on the mountaintop, remember back to a time you were in the valley. We've all been there. Remember a time where you felt hopeless and remember how God was the Lord. Remember how he provided. Remember how good he is. Remember how great he is. Remember that this morning. I'm gonna pray for us and I'm gonna invite you into a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open your word. Your word, it is alive and it is active. It is beautiful. It is, I mean, it is everything. And so we thank you that Ezekiel in the valley was faithful to see what you had put in front of him. And I pray God this morning that we would be faithful to see what you put in front of us. That you are the God who brings hope out of hopelessness. And so for every single one of those right now who's struggling, God, be hope. Be hope. Be the one who provides. Be Jehovah. Yes, God, we thank you. And we praise you. It's in your name we pray.